0: you're listening to audio from trinity west seattle for other resources more information about this sermon series or to connect with us visit our website www.trinityws.com please stand or remain standing for the reading of god's word my name is tina grays and i'll be reading from matthew 16 1323. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Hey, church, good morning. Uh, My name is Joel. I have the privilege of getting to open up God's word with you here and share. Uh, I'm going to pray as we do that together. God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you've inspired Matthew to write these words down, to tell us this story, and that it's not just a story, but it's something that will guide our very lives. Would you, Lord, just reveal the truth that is found here and allow that truth to transform our hearts? Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Come, speak to us. And as I share, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. Asking all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who are just joining us, who have never been a part of Trinity before, haven't been here in previous months, We've been in a series in Matthew's Gospel now for several years off and on. In fact, if you can believe it, it's number sermon number 66, <laughs> and we're barely a little more than halfway through this book, so buckle up. We've got a lot more to go, um, and I trust that you're enjoying it as much as I am. I've just been so blessed by Matthew's Gospel, and we've called this series Upside Down Kingdom because it's about Jesus' kingdom coming to earth and and we're hoping and praying that through this series we would become upside down kingdom people That as God works in us and as God works through us The world would be one step closer to heaven our relationships would be one step closer to heaven our workplaces our governments our marketplaces Our homes would be one step closer to heaven So that's our hope and our prayer and as we get started in uh the the subject that we're going to be looking at for today, and the, and this story, these two stories, I want to just see: has anybody here ever had the joy of being present when a toddler takes their first steps? Anybody? A number of you. Yeah, I uh, I'm trying to remember if I've seen my niece's first steps. I was there, I think, the day that she took her first steps, and then of course many of my kids. Uh, but if you've experienced this, you know that there's just all kinds of anticipation because the kid has been crawling, they've been beginning to stand up and lean on things, right, and, and you're kind of waiting for this to finally happen after weeks or months of trying, and then finally with an adult just a couple of feet away, just close enough, right, they go out and they, they embark on their maiden voyage. <laughs> And, and you can see their face light up when they do, right? Just a huge smile. They're on cloud nine like, what am I doing? This is incredible. I can't believe it. Right? Here's a little video Imagine of a kid doing you... it. So I think it's so cute.
0: Parent, but wait until you see how happy this toddler is to reach that milestone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's just <laughs> Is there any greater joy than that in the whole world? I don't think so, right? But you know what? A toddler's first steps often precede what? Their first fall, right? And, and before you know it, they're not smiling, they're screaming. <laughs> and there's this shift that's happened in their life. Yet within just a few minutes or, or maybe a few hours, they get back up, and what do they do? They try again. They go again. Because the only way anyone learns to walk is by falling. you got to fall. And so often, we want to imagine a Christian life that exists without falling. We would like to uh, imagine a Christian life where we don't fail, We want to imagine a Christian life where we choose to follow Jesus, and then from that point on, it's all sunshine and roses, right? But we, anyone who's followed Jesus for five minutes, knows that is simply not the case. Amen? Like Peter, we all fail. Like Peter, we all fall. And and more than that, the Christian life is patterned after the life of Christ, one that includes suffering includes death before it includes resurrection. And to want to grow without struggle, therefore, is to want a Christ without a cross. And this is the exact problem that Peter has in today's story. He confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, but he has a vision of a Christ that could save us without suffering and dying. And in the process, he has the second biggest failure of his life after where he denies Jesus three times. And, and, and what does he do in this story? Peter rebukes Jesus, but he'll get back up. We won't see it in this set of stories. Peter will get back up, and he will keep Walking and, and so the big idea that I'm hoping to draw out of these stories today is, first, just that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's transformational truth. But because of that, we return to faith even when we fall. So let's see. What this has to say to us, the first question that Jesus asked his disciples, the way the story kind of begins is, who do people say that Jesus is? Verses 13 and 14. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He's just talking about himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they've gone from the district of Galilee down into the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a town about 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee and even further from the God of Israel because it's a town that had been dedicated first to the regional God of Baal, and then later to the Greco-Roman god called Pan, and then most recently the town had been dedicated to the empire god, Caesar. In fact, uh, its name had recently been changed to Caesarea Philippi by one of the sons of Herod the Great. His name was Philip the Tetrarch. So he named the town after Caesar and himself in order to honor himself. Very humble guy, as you can tell. A very subtle thing to do, right? So why, why is it that this is the place that Jesus asked this question? Why does he choose to reveal his true identity in this place? Well, most likely, he was contrasting himself with all of those false gods. He was using this as a place to show how he would be different than all of these false gods. And he also chose to do it because it's a private place. He's there now with his disciples, they're far removed from all of the crowds and all of the controversy, and they can just have a private conversation. And his disciples respond to him. They answer the question that people seem to think that Jesus is merely a prophet. Now, was Jesus a prophet? Well, absolutely he was. But Even Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. How is Jesus different from these prophets that are listed here? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or really any other prophet. We're going to actually find out how he was different in a moment with Peter's confession. But before we get to that, I want to just kind of do this exercise along with Jesus' disciples. It's such a great question. Who do people say Jesus is? What an interesting question. Have you thought of that before? Who do people in Seattle uh, say Jesus is? Do you know how people in Seattle would answer it? The people that I talk to often say things like, Jesus was a good teacher, right? Or he was an imp- uh, important historical figure. Uh, Some people I've talked to highlight the fact that Jesus was a pacifist, like he was a first century Gandhi or something like that, right? Uh, Then there's other people I've talked to who are a little bit less optimistic. Some people say Jesus was made up so that people can have control over other people. And then some of my punk rock friends uh, think that Jesus was kind of the original anarchist, like anti-establishment Jesus, right? Do you know who people say Jesus is? You know, it's good to have a holy curiosity, is what I call it. Just a, a desire to understand other people, a desire, a genuine interest to hear what people think, even if you might disagree with them. Do you know how your next door neighbors would answer Jesus' question? Do you know how your coworkers would answer his question? Your friends, your your schoolmates, what would they say might even be worth asking them? Who do you think Jesus is? And and then the next question we have to answer is, what would you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? And that's actually Jesus' next question for his disciples here. Who do you say Jesus is? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, always the eager guy, right? He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar So this is just Simon Peter's full name. Simon and then bar is son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. It's a name Jesus gave him. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then, what did he do? He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus is so enthusiastic about Peter's response, but then he tells the disciples to keep it hush-hush. Anybody find that strange? The reason why is because Jesus is walking lockstep. With God the Father. He is so connected to God the Father, and he knows God's plan for how his kingdom would come. He, he doesn't want to get too popular too soon, because that will thwart those plans. He doesn't want to disrupt what God is going to do, and Jesus is going to describe what God is going to do in the next section that we'll read. But Jesus As he hears Peter's confession, he's very enthusiastic. What was Peter's confession? It was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What what exactly is Peter saying here? Well, first off, we have to clear up the fact that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Amen? Right? Christ is his title. We often hear Jesus Christ and we think of it as his last name. It's his title. It's, It's the Greek word, for Messiah. And the Messiah was the anointed King and Savior of Israel and the whole world. And so in saying that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is saying, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one who will defeat our enemies. You're the one who will save us from the hand of all of our oppressors and from the bondage of sin and idolatry. You're the one who is going to lead us into victory as God's chosen people. And so there is so much behind this title of Christ. There's so much hope, so much hope that Peter has. And Peter also confessed this other part of the phrase, Jesus, you're the son of the living God. Now, when we read that, we know that Jesus is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. But at the time that Peter said this, He didn't fully understand what he was saying, and that's going to become really clear in the next story that we'll look at in a moment. The disciples didn't come to fully recognize Jesus' divinity until after he rose from death. And so when Peter makes this confession that Jesus is the son of the living God, Peter was actually just restating what he said in saying that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he meant by that. It was another way of describing this special descendant of David that Israel was waiting on. Jews believed that the Messiah would be the son of God in the sense that he would have the privileged and unique position among all people of, of representing the God of heaven. And so Peter confesses these things, and it's so clear by his confession that Peter has faith. And so much so that, he res- that Jesus responds by telling him that he is blessed by God. And why, is he, why does Jesus say he's blessed by God? Because flesh and blood had not revealed this to Peter, but Jesus' Father in heaven had. Think about what Jesus says there for just a minute. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. What does Jesus mean by flesh and blood had not revealed this to him? What, What flesh and blood is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his own flesh and blood. Jesus is telling Peter, you have seen me, and you've watched me perform miracles, and you've watched me teach with power, and and, and you've been around me all of these years, but that's not why you believe. After all, there are a lot of people, in fact thousands of people, who have observed Jesus in the flesh and still didn't believe. Jesus is telling Peter, you believe. Because God, our Heavenly Father, has revealed my true identity to you. That's what He's saying. Why is that so important? Because here we are, thousands of years later. Jesus is not standing in front of us in flesh and blood. And even if He were, many of us wouldn't believe. That's what Jesus is saying. Belief does not come by seeing with eyes of flesh but through eyes of faith. And so I want you to think about that for just a minute. Do you have eyes of faith? What's your answer to Jesus' question? Who do you say that I am? Peter clearly has eyes of faith. At least he has some faith, right? But before we get to his colossal failure that we're going to look at in a moment, we need to digest a bit more of how Jesus is responding to him because his enthusiasm leads Jesus to tell Peter all that his faith was going to produce. Here's what he says. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says... Uh, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All of that because of what Peter has just said. So let's unpack that for just a moment. Is Jesus saying that Peter would be the first pope? Anybody read that and go, man, I see it so clearly now. Obviously, he's saying that Peter's going to be that, that first bishop of Rome with unique and supreme authority. Isn't that what he's saying? No. Probably not surprising to hear me as a Protestant say no, if that's not what he's saying. But that's not what he's saying. Just read it for yourself. Is Jesus saying, though, that when we get to the pearly gates of heaven, Peter would have to let us in? Uh No. No, Okay, then what is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying that Peter would be what the early church called an apostle. It's very simple, that's what he's saying. Peter would have the authority as an apostle to speak on behalf of heaven. That's what Jesus meant by having the keys to the kingdom, that, that, that the apostles, that Peter would be like stewards of the kingdom. They'd be in charge of it, and for, just to be honest, all believers are stewards of the kingdom. If you're a Christian, you are, and, and I am, but Peter's role would be unique among all of us. Uh, there were only 12 apostles, 13 if you include Paul. And they had unique authority on earth to determine God's will from heaven. That's what is meant by this binding and loosing. It's weird language to us, but it's the language that they would have used for rabbis who are interpreting the scripture and saying, This is what God means, this is what you are to do and what not to do. And in a sense, this is Jesus' prediction that after he ascends into heaven, after his resurrection, and he sends his Holy Spirit that the apostles would go on then to write our New Testament books, that they would then be the first leaders in God's new community called the church. And that, friends, is incredible. Peter receiving this news is probably just kind of trying to wrap his mind around it, like, whoa, what just happened? He must have felt like he was on top of the world. He's this fisherman from Galilee, right? And here he is now, he just got promoted to the second highest degree of power on earth after Jesus. Just try and imagine that transition. Imagine what if that happened to you, right? You know, you're working the line at Chipotle, right? And then all of a sudden God comes to you and he says, you're going to be the president of the United States and China and India and Brazil and South Africa all at once. What would you do? What would you do with all of that power? Now, of course, the power that Peter has just been given, it it does have political implications, but it is not political in nature. It has to do with God's kingdom, which actually transcends all political powers, all governments, all secular human power. It has to do with his church, his, his people. And you know what Jesus says here in this prophecy to Peter, he says, I will build my church. Now, ultimately, he's telling us the church belongs to him. And that's because the church isn't a building, it, it's not an institution, it's not a club, right? It's not a business. It's God's kingdom people. It's those of us who belong to him through faith, which is part of why. Friends, we have to be careful when we take possession of the church. When we say things like, my church, right? And I don't want to overstate my case. Don't hear me wrong. I think it can be perfectly harmless to say, uh, this is my church, of course. But some of the most dangerous and damaging words that have ever been spoken by anyone besides Jesus is, I will build my church. Anybody ever hear someone say something like that? And it's damaging because it's not ours. It's his. I once sat in an office watching two pastors duke it out over this exact issue. There, there weren't any fists involved in this duking out. Of course, it was all words and, frankly, a lot of F-bombs in that conversation, but one pastor, angry, says to the other, "'Whose church is this?' And the other pastor's like quietly over here, kind of stunned, like, what in the heck is going on? What, why, is this, why is he asking me this? And after the, the pause and more silence, "'Whose church is this?' And finally the other guy responds, uh, "'Yours?' "'Sorry.'" <laughs> It's yours, and I wanted to jump out of my seat and yell, Neither of yours! It's neither of yours! It does not belong to you! Of course, I didn't, because I was a coward. Um, But, you know, this sort of talk, it's the clearest sign that someone is abusing their power in Jesus' church. It's my church! But, you know, here's the good news it's also the clearest sign that their power will come to an end. Because what does Jesus say here? He says that the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not prevail against his church. Amen? In other words, what he's trying to get at is that the church will never die. It will go on forever Which is encouraging news because we see some pretty horrible stuff go down in churches. Some that's far worse than the story I just told. And people doing things in the name of Jesus as a result of their sinfulness. And they're taking, uh, abusing their power, taking a wrong hold of Jesus' church. Those churches then go shrink, Right? Sometimes they close, sometimes we might use the term they die, and yet while we see churches fail to be all that Jesus has called us to be, we see church buildings vacated, we see movements dissipated, but for those who truly belong to Him, who truly love Him, the church will live on. Amen? Because Jesus lives on and we belong to him and he promises us that he will build his church and and that promise stands even when we fail. Which brings us back to Peter and his story because Peter, yeah, he's taking some early steps of faith here, but we have to go back to that truth about the toddler at the beginning. The only way you learn to walk is by falling. And here's what happens. And Jesus, it happens as Jesus is telling the disciples how he's going to prove that he's the Christ. Here's what he says. or Here's what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The audacity, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Pretty crazy. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, I'm, I'm working on a discipleship handbook. It's a real basic one, just like a one-sheet on discipleship. Step one is don't rebuke Jesus. <laughs> step two, don't contradict his prophecies, right? Uh, maybe step three is set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. I, I think if you follow those, you're going to go far. So if you're just wanting to learn what it means to be a disciple, just do those three things. And it is funny to laugh at Peter, isn't it? I mean, it's really, it's, it's nice to just have a story like this where we can really feel superior to him at times. <laughs> but if we're honest, we're a lot like Peter. And, and I want you to try and put yourself in his shoes in this story. Remember, I said earlier, he thought that the Messiah would come and defeat Israel's enemies, right? He thought that the Messiah was going to come and save them from the hand of their oppressors. And most Jews, including Peter, would have thought that that would all happen through a military victory, right? That's the way it always happens. That's the way it works even to this day. And on top of that, Peter had been on this amazing upward trajectory, right? He'd just gotten this incredible promotion. He got handed the keys to the kingdom, and he's busy having his "I'm on, I'm the king of the world moment, like Jack on the Titanic, right? He's in the middle of having that moment. But while his faith was... Hopeful. His faith was also misguided. The things that he thought would prevent Jesus from being the Christ were the very things that proved it. The story that he had conceived of in his head was not the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus required, he just told us, required that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and die. And so if you just heard the Messiah tell you that for the first time, you would probably rebuke him too. I know I would. I would. And here we are standing on this side of the story and being able to look back and see all that Jesus has done. And yet even though we may know all that has happened, we do the same thing that that Peter has done. We do the same thing with our faith. We're sailing along. We're growing, right? Things are going well. But then God does something that we never thought that he would do. He says, I'm going to allow you to suffer. We can't accept that. It's like, Jesus, I thought Christianity was all about resurrection. And it is. But on this side of eternity, it has at least as much cross as it does resurrection. And so we have to be cross Christians just as much as we are resurrection Christians or else we're going to encounter suffering in our own lives. And we're going to want to rebuke Jesus as well. And in doing so, what we're saying is we want a crossless Christianity. Do you want a crossless Christianity, a crossless Christ? So your life is, is only triumphs, right? And you know, everybody likes you, and you know, you always get the, the job promotion, your bank accounts are always full, the people that you love are always healthy. Your relationship with God is just electric, 24-7 all the time. I'll I'll be the first one to confess, I I want that, (laughs) right? I want that. I get it. But friends, a crossless Christ is a a crownless Christ. He's a Messiah who doesn't save us, he can't save us. He's not even a Messiah at all. He's a... a Maybe He's a king, I don't know, but He's one who doesn't challenge us on all our own sinfulness, our own need for Him to die for us. He's certainly a Christ who couldn't have victory over our enemies. Crossless Christ is not Christ. Return with me for just a moment back to Matthew chapter 4. I think we must have covered that like three years ago or so. But if you were here, you might remember the story that right before Jesus began his earthly ministry, he was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Why? To be tempted by the devil. And what did the devil tempt him to do? He tempted him to avoid the pain of the cross, to shortcut the path to becoming king, And friends, that's what we do. That's what we make of Jesus when we try to avoid the pain that God has ordained for us. Like, God, you can't do this to me. I'm not supposed to suffer. And that's like saying to Jesus, you can't go to the cross. You're not supposed to suffer. And so Jesus, man, he he knows what he's supposed to do. And, and he has a strong rebuke for Peter, the strongest rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine getting called Satan by Jesus? <laughs> you don't want to get called Satan. That is like the greatest insult that you could ever have from him. But Peter is a stumbling block to him, he says, a hindrance. By telling Jesus not to suffer and die, he's getting in the way of Jesus' calling. And ultimately, he's getting in the way of God's plan for all of humanity. In doing so, Peter is, is in partnership with the adversary, with the accuser, the one who tempted Jesus out there in the wilderness. Peter is tempting Jesus to do the same thing that Satan did to seek a crown. Without a cross. And so Peter, he was walking, but man, he just falls flat on his face here. A minute ago, he was soaring up into heaven, and now he's hanging out down in hell. That's what's happened. But I want you to notice something. Notice how Jesus responds to him. He rebukes him, but he doesn't reject him. Jesus doesn't curse him, he corrects him. Even though Peter is in league with Jesus' greatest enemy, Jesus doesn't reject him. He helps Peter to see that his head is in the wrong place. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of God, friends, are always bigger. They're always better than what we can see, than what we can imagine, including when he ordains suffering. And so Jesus uses this as a discipleship opportunity for Peter. He doesn't give up on Peter. Do you see that? And I want you to see that because I don't want you to think for one minute that God will give up on you. Just because you suffer, maybe. Just because you fail. See, God is so gracious and He is so kind that He knows that we can't learn to walk without falling. And He loves us anyway. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if you truly have faith, then you will never fail. You will fail, amen? (laughs) You will, we will, I will. But that's exactly why Jesus suffered and died. So that at our lowest, he would be there to catch us when we fall. And so knowing that, we get back up and we keep walking. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Sending us Jesus to be the Messiah that none of us would have ever expected. To be the Savior who comes and liberates us from the bondage of sin and death and Satan by dying for us, by giving yourself to us in love. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for lifting us up when we fall. And we pray that by your grace and your strength, we would have the courage to keep on walking. In your name, amen.
0: You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.